I'd like to welcome everyone to the Roxborough Roundtables. My name is Elena Fithian and I am the student coordinator for the tables. Today our topic is Quilling Tensions Between African Americans and the Philadelphia Police, hosted by Arlen Specter Research Fellow, Monika Dirksen. Hi, I'm Monika Dirksen. I'm a PhD student at Temple University. I'm currently working on relationship between the police and the black community in the 1970s in Philadelphia, looking at race, racial profiling, tensions, and housing projects, and how all those elements in Philadelphia society have shaped race relations and also caused a repetitive cycle of murder between black citizens and the police in Philadelphia. I'm Jay Riesenberger from the Law Society program. I'm Allie Warren. I'm a Law Society major. My name is Sabrina Lights. Uh, Hillel Levinson, I'm professor at uh, Jefferson University, teaching international law, and come springtime, hopefully, be teaching tort law. So, looking forward to that. Evan Lane, I'm director of the All Inspector Center. I'm Maria Sinabaro, I'm an assistant professor of African American Studies. So, the first question I want to pose to everyone is. Why do you think there's racial tension between the police, specifically white police officers and African Americans, not just in Philadelphia, but in generally, nationally, in northern cities and southern cities in the United States? You want to take that one? Okay. I'll follow up. <laughs> um, I think it's, it's obviously multiple reasons. There's no one answer. But I think um, assumptions are made regarding who's dangerous and who's not dangerous. And I think that the police, uh, through their own personal life experiences, and maybe as police officers as well, make assumptions that uh, black, especially young males, equals dangerous. So in light of that, you would have a lot of stock and risks where you wouldn't have people of other color and a lot more interaction of a negative kind because of these assumptions that are made. Um, I feel like even dating back to slavery, like for so long, African Americans have been looked at as dangerous, like because like, we were built like, um, like, like some people, like some people will say like we look like stronger, like we're built like to have more muscle stuff like that. So I feel like even like we've always just been looked at as more dangerous because of our capabilities. Um, also, I just feel like um, movies and stuff like that, like in the media, we're all like. It's always you. Really, you very rarely see like really good movies where like like the stars, like a black person, like doing being successful. Like you usually see like oh they're being drug dealers, like killers. Like you never or like being stupid and like not smart and intelligent versus like like the new Black Panther movie. That's why everybody like, went like crazy because it was just like you've never like you've never experienced this like seeing like actually like being depicted as good people. You know, stuff like that. So I think there's a couple of things. Oh, several different things. So a couple of them. One, I think, is um, this kind of ideology of white supremacy that exists within the United States. And white supremacy not meaning the KKK or neo-Nazis, but a system of domination that benefits white people in the United States um, and allocates resources in disproportionate ways. So I think that that, and also you know, media representations, um, educational systems being unequal, like a variety of different things. Um, I think policing is also 
um, there's a there's a connection between race and class, um, and so people of color tend to be people who have less money, um, and so if you have policing in inner city communities, it's easier to kind of police in inner city communities where people are living in closer proximity to each other, and where drug dealing might happen outside on the street rather than in a suburban area where a kid is taking their parents' pills, right, or something like that. Um, so I think it also has to do with geographic location and where folks are living, um, in, particularly in terms of this intersection between race and class. If I can jump in. Um, I, I've been fortunate enough to, or unfortunate enough, to be born and raised in Philadelphia. And, and I'm 81 years old, and I've had a lot of years of experiences here. Back in the 60s uh, was a serious time of unrest in the city, not only in the city of Philadelphia, but nationally. Um, and the one thing that, that I had a front row seat and could observe was the fact that the evolution of the diversity within the police department was always one generation behind what was happening in the city of Philadelphia. Um, in the 60s, you had mostly Anglo-Saxon and Irish cops in Philadelphia. Uh, that stayed true through the 70s. Uh, in the 70s, you started picking up, the Anglo-Saxons dropped off, the Irish cops were still there, and the Italian group came in. And then toward the end of the 70s, the African-Americans came in as, uh, now these are generalizations, I mean, there was always a, uh, some, some integration. But I think that we've been very lucky in the city of Philadelphia in that generally we've been able to avoid some of the major, other than in the 60s, major confrontations that took place uh, throughout the country and are taking place today. Uh, I had lunch with our guests today and we were talking about the fact that I recommended very strongly that she reach out for the police commissioner in the city of Philadelphia, a gentleman by the name of Commissioner Ross. Excuse me one second. For those who are listening, we're waiting for another seat. Yes, yeah. he's probably lost that. So. No, that's not. Okay. Um, and and what what the police department has learned over the last forty years is that the old ways of policing are no longer acceptable in an urban center like Philadelphia. That there has to be some understanding of how, what we, what, what we euphemistically call community policing today. I'm not sure that's the right term for it. What it really means is that the community has to understand that they can walk up to a police officer and address him and say hello and shake his hand and everything. And by the way, I'm saying he. Uh, we have male and female police officers in the city of Philadelphia, all of who do a great job. The one thing that's really lacking is the retraining of our police officers. And that's mostly a function of the fact that there just aren't are enough police officers to police the city of Philadelphia, plus take somebody off duty 
to give them uh, a, a retraining. Uh, back in the 70s, we had a, a sufficient number of police officers to be able to do retraining. Uh, but in, in, in today's day, in, in, I've had long conversations with the police commissioner about this, and he bemoans the fact that he can't take anybody off the street in order to do retraining. And would love to be able to, and there are other things he would like to be able to do, but he has less than 5,000 police officers now, and he cannot police the city of Philadelphia. With, uh, if, I, if I just pose a question yeah. to a fellow, no. in light of all this, well, it says, but there's still tension, isn't there? So the question is why? You know, we were doing our, I, I'm sure there's good intentions and some not good intentions. Of why are we, first of all, have you found this tension in Philadelphia? And um, the next question is, so why? So originally I thought that tensions between the police and the black community originated in the 60s when there was many riots in northern cities like Newark and New Jersey and New York. But just looking at like interpersonal relationships between just black and white residents in the city, it goes back to like the late 1800s. So noticing that it's coming from the era of reconstruction just signifies that these tensions, racial tensions go back all the way to slavery. And even prior to slavery, for example, Winthrop Jordan in his book, White Over Black, he's a historian, he talks about how European travelers, when they first came to Africa in the 1500s, they took back narratives that described the people there as black. And along with other stereotypes and opinions that might not be always positive. But when readers in Europe heard about these black people in Africa, they took the definition literal, and looking in their dictionary, black meant evil, it meant dark, it meant vain, it meant something negative. And that whole original stigma of what black means and being attached to people in Africa without actually knowing the whole story of who they are and just the whole misconception and uh, misunderstanding. That whole history, even going with slavery, and everything still continuing with also white supremacy. There's also institutional racism with laws, with Jim Crow laws in the South and de facto um, segregation in the North and de jure segregation in the South. We still have that trend of racism continuing in society, not just with laws, but also with people in general, average people communicating with each other. and. It's not until in Philadelphia, there, it happens in like the late 1800s into the early 1900s, but what really happens where tensions arise is in post-World War II era, where you have the GI Bill, and you have African Americans and white Americans getting a shot at a middle class status with college benefits, home loans backed by the federal government, making it affordable for them to own a home, and go to schools that are decent, middle-class neighborhoods. And it's that forcible integration that people had issue with. And it's where tensions actually started. So it has nothing really to do with like police and black people having tensions to start. It starts like, with average people in neighborhoods not being able to understand each other and still holding on to these 
racial stereotypes and beliefs that were passed down to them for generations. So going from the 40s to the 50s, you have, there's still factories up and coming because of American society being industrialized, but because businesses want to save money, they have, there's a job flight, so jobs are moving to the suburbs. And then eventually, as we know, there's outsourcing, so jobs are not just in domestically here in the United States, but overseas. So you have people in general leaving urban cities like Philadelphia, looking for jobs in the suburbs. And then there's also some people not just looking for jobs in suburbs, but just trying to get away, specifically white, racist white people trying to get away from black people and moving to the suburbs. So white flight, job flight. And while these people are moving out of the city, cities like Philadelphia, the tax base, the, the way that we bring in taxes from property taxes, our income, that money that pays for our streets, our infrastructure, our schools, that's dwindling. And you have government officials like Frank Rizzo and other people people that know that you need the tax base to pay for your fire department, for your police department. There's also the issue with like race, with crime also, because people are unemployed. So knowing that there's people leaving the city, there's integration, there's job loss, there's the loss of the tax base, there's riots, there's people competing for jobs, not just within their ethnic group, but also um, blacks and whites competing for jobs, so you also have a rise in racial tension in that cause. And along with government officials and police departments thinking in the 50s that we need to pursue more crime orient, we need to control crime more than we send police officers to do emergency service calls. You have police officers using excessive force, even to the point where there's deadly force. And that use of deadly force by either the Anglo-Saxon or German descendant cops or Irish cops and then Italian cops and then in some cases black cops working and riding alongside white cops in the 60s. They're using deadly force and that deadly force causes African Americans to not only have um, incensed and incensed and angered sentiments towards police, but it also encourages them to mistrust police, especially if they know they're involved in corruption, like taking bribes with, and gambling and prostitution and things like that. But it causes them to want to kill police if they ever come in confrontation with them. Not only just riot, but actually killing innocent officers. So you have that back and forth, repetitive cycle of police and citizens, black citizens, killing cops and specifically white cops because they also recognize there's a racial component to oppression that carries over to the 70s. I think there's one thing I'd like to add to that, the political component of it. Because as we know from John Ehrlichman, who honestly said about Nixon's drug policies, that they were written specifically to destroy the black Americans politically, to put their men into jail to take away their voting rights and to destroy families to create powerless situation because he viewed the African-American um, society as a threat to his power base. And Erlewin was very honest about that when he said that. So when you're being, when you feel you're being targeted, that's gonna obviously ratchet up 
the emotion. And of course, police officers are human beings as well, and they feel the heat, the heat coming towards them, the people who feel they're targeted, so they respond with further heat. So I, I think politically also it's adds to that very long list that, that, that you started with. The, the, the title of this meeting today, this roundtable, was Tension Between the Police, the Black Community and the, and the Police Department. And I think I heard Professor Lane asked you whether that still exists today, and I think your answer was yes. Okay. So my question is this. Uh, in a city, and I'm talking about just Philadelphia, I'm not talking about the world or just, just within this. Uh, <clears throat> we have a police department where the majority of the police officers, male and female, are black. And we have a city where at least some substantial portion is black also. And yet, there probably are tensions uh, that still go on. I guess the question I, I would like to raise is, is, if that's a true statement, why do you think those tensions, if it's black on black between the police department and the citizens, why are those tensions still there with the police department? What causes that? So, Dr. Reed, by the way, is my guest, Dr. Thomas Reed. Hi. <laughs> so, knowing that Philadelphia's police department in the late 19th century into the 70s, it first started with predominantly Anglo-Saxon German police officers running, not only police officers, but also government officials. And it's not all. It's not only a. It's not just a coincidence that these are also the same people since early American history were the privileged group of society. So we're talking about Anglo-Saxon Protestant males during the <clears throat> and the founding of our country have been privileged. Even when you look at immigration laws like the Naturalization Act of 1790. So these people. Anglo-Saxon and German-descended people ran Philadelphia in the early in the early 1900s. They were the predominant ethnic group. Then there was the Irish. Then there was Italians, and then there were African Americans. So in 1900, the black population in United in, in Philadelphia was 4.8 percent, and it's only been gradual that the population has increased to where in 1970, African-Americans made up 33% approximately of the Philadelphia population. So not only were African-Americans outnumbered in Philadelphia racially, but also in the police force, they were also a small percentage. So knowing that certain areas in urban cities are stigmatized, in Philadelphia, black neighborhoods were stigmatized as being crime-ridden and dangerous, and in some cases, when black people had crime happening among themselves in the neighborhoods, they would call police. This is in the early 1900s. And in some cases, police being predominantly Anglo-Saxon, German, or Irish, they would not come. Or if they did come, they used excessive force just because of those stigmas and stereotypes. And then along with black citizens, many of them upstanding, knowing that the police were involved in corruption, 
with taking bribes, letting other criminal activity persist. They did not trust the police. And then there's also the issue of when there was confrontation between black citizens and the police, there was often physical abuse, there was verbal abuse, and all those things make a community mistrust a police force, not have much care about their person, not thinking about them on an individual level. So in the 70s, just to jump ahead, you did have black cops and white cops. There was around Rizzo's time as police commissioner, late 1960s, there, were, uh, there was a black officer and a white officer riding in police cars, patrolling neighborhoods like North Philly. And even then, there was issues in which black citizens did not trust African-American cops because they saw it as a betrayal, knowing the whole history. History is being passed down, not just through newspaper articles or newsreel, but also families telling histories of past experiences with the police. So knowing that in some cases you can't trust the police and also hearing stories from other neighborhoods or other cities that police have been known to use excessive force, not just against rioters, but also protesters, like protesting um, segregation at Girard College in 1968. You have African-Americans not only facing racially biased policing, but getting treated different, facing excessive force and even deadly force to the point where in, in, from 1970 to 1979, there was 469 police-involved shootings. And 66% of those people that were shot by the police or killed were African-American. Now, in 1970s, black people only made up 33% of the population in Philadelphia. So why is it that there's such a big jump in the numbers of people arrested? How, how is it that they're being arrested and shot at twice as many times when they only make up 33%. So that's an issue there. And then knowing that that's happening, you have black citizens, some of them angry at police and also having a history of criminality, lashing out at police, not having respect for police and also killing them to the point where 17 police officers were killed in the 70s, mainly white police officers and that number is extremely high considering that it hasn't been that high since the 1920s where 27 police officers were killed in the line of duty. So there, ha there is a really serious racial disparity when you look at the numbers and you look at the history. And even though there's also an issue of class and it's not always black people that suffer police brutality. There's also instances in where Latinx people have suffered police brutality and poor whites, but there's clearly a racial disparity in how police over time have treated African Americans. And it goes back to the country's history in that white Protestants, males have been the privileged part of our society and the That's question addressing Professor Levinson's uh, statement. Um, there's an assumption made that because it's a black police officer facing someone who's black who may be doing something, that the tension will be less because uh, 
But it doesn't matter, I think, what you're saying, because they're not seeing a black police officer. They're seeing a police officer. Yes. And even, am I correct if I'm wrong here, but it could even be worse, because not only are they seeing a police officer, but they're seeing a police officer who they view as a sellout. Yes. So there's even more tension, where you would think, oh, it's another black person that we're going to relate, we're friends, whatever it may be. It becomes an aggravating factor as opposed to a mitigating factor because of the history. They don't see black or white police, they see police. Yes. And that's the people who have oppressed uh, them all this time. Is, is, am I right on that? Yes. Oh, good for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm Megan Spangenbaugh, a SAG major, and I'm currently enrolled in a law enforcement class in which just last week uh, we were viewing a text in our. Um, of like a chapter in our textbook about this exact issue and uh like going back to like what professor lane was just saying it's like they they did the statistics there was like i think oh my god i can't remember the name it's like one like so it's like if it's if it's a black suspect and a black police officer it was like uh like the, the odds are very high that the black police officer will say to take the person in because of the like the the fear of like be betraying the call like Betraying the blue, so like there's like this whole like like type of like um, behavior that happens in the law enforcement, and so like black police officers are like marginalized because of their race, and then they're marginalized because they're police officers. So like it's I can never I couldn't even imagine like what it must be like because they're seen as traitors to their race, and then they're seen as like infiltrators to police off to like white police officers. Like they can't really be trusted because of this. So. In order to like um, deal with that, they have to overcompensate when they're in the field. And they actually did like studies. Um, I should have my textbook. I should have brought my textbook with me. But they did studies showing that like police, black police officers will tend to give out um, harsher judgments or like uh, arrest more black people than say a white police officer would because they have to defend the fact that they're police officers too. And like that must suck to have to do that to validate that you're a police officer. Can I interrupt just to introduce? Dr. Reed. Dr. Reed and I go back to the late 60s, early 70s together. We actually got together in the 70s as a result of there being a very high level of gang-related shootings and killings in the city of Philadelphia in the 60s. And uh, one of the challenges that was put on my desk was to do something about that that importance. And uh, luckily enough, a, a very great state senator, Harry Williams, came in one day with uh, a, a young Vietnam veteran by the name of Betty Swans, who said, I have a program which I'll be willing to put together to reduce the number of gang-related killings in the city of Philadelphia. And that became what we called the crisis intervention teams. And they were teams of young men who went on the streets of the city of Philadelphia. And uh, I'm going to use the word, it's the wrong word, confronted the, the gang members and challenged them about stopping the, the killings. And we went from 60-some killings in 72 to 30-some in 73 to three in 74 
and then down to zero. And the reason I asked Dr. Reed to join us today is that he had, he was on the streets of Philadelphia in the 70s. Uh, it wasn't someone like myself who sat up in some office way above everything or anything else like that. But he and Benny Swans and how many guys were in the teams? 55 all together. 55 all together. When we, and we scraped together to get them equipment and beat up old cars and police radios so that they could respond. And Tom, if you can share with them, we get some perspective from a, a person who was on the streets in the 70s. Well, uh, not only being on the street in the 70s, I was born and raised here in Philadelphia. I was born and raised on 2073 Ridge in a housing project. Uh, and I, I start smiling at some of the things you were reading because I remember them. <laughs> not so much from the textbook or research. I, I remember that the, um, the problem was getting so bad uh, in Philadelphia with gangs that the first curfew, uh, how many of y'all know that Philadelphia has a curfew? Today, raise your hand. We have one. Yeah. There's a curfew in Philadelphia. Uh, that if you're 17 years old, yeah, you can't be on the streets from Monday to Thursday after 10:30. The purpose of that curfew was to control black movement, black youth, and, and, and that was the better part of a compromise from the initial curfew. The initial curfew was no more than three or four black youth, male, could walk in a group. At any time? At any time. At any time. Um, so coming out of Boy Scout meetings, our scoutmaster would release us three at a time so that we can walk home. Um, there's a lot of things about Philadelphia. Now, one of the things that I believe is a mis- conception, is black police officers. The Crisis Intervention Network, which uh, he'll speak of, I was in charge of the law enforcement component. I was a parole officer. And each team was assigned a parole officer. I had 250 probationers throughout the city of Philadelphia. Each team had 50. Um, but these were the leaders, the ones with all the check, if you will, in the community, we kept them on one case. But when I was a child, there were black cops uh, on the force that lived in our community. Back then, you could be living next door to your lawyer, your black doctor. Down the street could be your teacher because we all were in one community. Uh, the worst part, um, what was perceived as the high crime area at that time was uh, it's called Cecil B. Moore Avenue, uh, uh, right in the heart of Temple now. It's, uh, but it was Columbia Avenue. And the police officers who walked the beat were African Americans. They were black. Now they'll jack you up. But they would do that so you wouldn't get a rest record. If you broke the law, you're going to jail. But just hanging out, drinking, the things of that nature. They, they were our advocates. They were our advocates. What I found out, that the mentality of a person doesn't change because of the uniform. 
If you were racist pig before you became a cop, you're going to continue. If you was a sellout before you became a cop, that's going to continue. But I remember some solid, solid African-American cops and some solid, solid white cops. Uh, there was an inspector named Magzion. Magnificent guy. You have to see this guy. He belonged in Hollywood. He was about 6'2", jet black hair. He was built unreal, and he wore tailor-made uniforms. <laughs> and and he, he prided himself. You know Inspector Magzion? He prided himself on that. But he was solid. He cried when black kids were dying. And he was a tough cop. He was a tough cop. He worked really, really close with us. Uh, Inspector Roselle, who uh, top aide was Lieutenant Willie Williams, who became the first African-American police commissioner. These, there were some solid white cops who believed in law and order uh, in spite of I could tell you stories about the other end, too. They were a whole bunch of them. whole bunch of them. I can even tell you in Eastern State Penitentiary on Fairmount Avenue that you now go in on Halloween. Uh, I think it was the only jail in America that was 72% white. So I remember those things, but times have changed and things have changed. Okay? Um, the racism was real. It was real. Now, I'm going to tell a story, and he'll make turn turn a little red. <laughs> We're from the same neighborhood. We are. He's Mansion. from Strawberry Mansion, 33rd and Diamond. I'm four blocks, five blocks down the street in a housing project. There was a theater called the Park Theater that was almost across the street from where Hill grew up. And we're almost the same age. We would go to this movie. If the sun caught us, if the sun went down and little black boys was in his neighborhood, we got a ride home by the police. They wanted to know what we were doing there and why were we there. So I remember those times. But there's been tremendous uh, gains uh, in the Philadelphia Police Department. Uh, um, what do you think of Commissioner Ross? I think he's an intellectual who tried to over-intellectualize street crime, uh, street issues. I believe he's extremely smart. Uh, he, he's, he's, uh, he's even killed. He really tried to work things out. But sometimes I think it is what it is. Uh, uh, one, we, we had a unit called the Gang Control Unit that was part of the police department that dealt strictly with gangs. They were horrible. They were black. They were horrible. They were horrible. But their thing was not to lock you up. They would beat you so bad it was unreal. They would put, they would, uh, if you were from this gang, they would pick you up and take you to this gang's turf and release you. Turf dropping. Yeah, turf dropping, that's right. And your chances of getting back home were less than 50-50. They would do that. But their thing was to scare you out of being in the gang. But it didn't work. It didn't work at all. Uh, but we, we, we were able to change because Mayor Rizzo had such a bad image in the black community. It was unreal. Uh, Y'all all remember his image 
with the Black Panthers stripping them on Columbia Avenue, them having a tuxedo on with the blackjack stuck down the Cumberbund and a bunch of black guys stripped naked. And that was his image. That was his image. He was called the racist uh, and so forth. In later years and, and, and growing up and being around him, that's what I thought. After getting to know him, if there was a color bias, it was blue. Because he, he was not a racist per se. But he believed in his cops, and his cops could do no wrong. So he sanctioned race, racism by being blind to the fact that he was all blue. And, and his cops did, did some bad things on the streets. But you got to keep in mind, kids were killing each other in Philadelphia. It was Mayor Rizzo. Hillard Levinson was the managing director of the city of Philadelphia. That meant that he ran every department. But it was under Mayor Rizzo that we got a million dollars to stop kids from killing each other. So uh, we, we, we have to acknowledge that when we talk about it. And after we got to know him. And the other thing about racism, uh, Mayor Rizzo had seven bodyguards. Five of them were black. So you ain't gonna hate somebody too much to guard your body and your family. But he had pockets uh, where cops could do no wrong, and he supported them, and that got out that he was a racist. Uh, but uh, I, I didn't think he was. I didn't think he was. We've had some bad police chiefs. We had some bad cops. We had bad cops today, black people. And again, I go back to the mentality of what you started with. There are some cops who get on the force for reform, for protection. That's what they want to do in their communities, and they do it. But we don't read about that. We don't read about the, uh, 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 the hundreds of, of, of white cops uh, that uh, adopted uh, and mentored little black children. You know, but it's, it's, it is what it is and we read, read it. But you can't cover it with a blanket. Because that's how I tried to do things in the early part of my life. You know, this is this and it's not. You have to get down and get involved in it. And sometimes the research and the stories don't tell it the way that it should be. Tommy, tell them what you're doing today. Um, well, today I, I, I have something. Today, I mean now. In well, it's, I, it was today. That's when you pulled me from. Oh, okay. Um, I have substance abuse clinics. I have two. I have one in Southwest Philadelphia, and I have one in North Philly, and we treat close to 800 people a day for substance abuse uh, and, 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 and mental health. I do a lot of things in the prison. I'm up for I'm in all the prisons. I'm there a lot. Uh, this recently, the Supreme Court ruled. All those kids we worked with that were in gangs, they were killing people. Uh, the uh, uh, Supreme Court ruled last year that it was unconstitutional to give these kids life without possibility of parole. So now they're coming home. They have to go back before a judge. Uh, I, I think the sentence... The new sentence, I think it stinks. So the, the kid spent 44 years in, in prison, and his new sentence is 44 years to life, but he's eligible for immediate parole. So they're coming home now. Is that Andre Martin? He, uh, he's one of them. We, we had over 300. The most of any city in the country, over 300. 99% were black. Over 300. So far, about 26 have come home. 
So, but we do a lot of work up, up, up in Graterford. I see a lot of things. Are we mentoring children of incarcerated parents? And I'm throwing all this out because there's some real good causes to get involved in. You know, children of incarcerated parents will themselves end up incarcerated if it's not an intervention. Uh, and their chances of being incarcerated is 85%. 85%. So if there's 6 million people incarcerated, none of them have one child. You know, they have beds for the next 200 years in America that will be filled. But just think about that. One intervention. Let me just bring back to Paul because we haven't even mentioned all the spectrum yet. Oh, I'm sorry. And we should have mentioned him. Oh. This is Billy. But uh, your research is on what can be done better as far as, and that's what a lot of what you were addressing, is what could be done better. Um, what can be done better uh, what, what, to bring, and what did he do as an all-inspector fellow, research fellow, what have you uh, are researching in that regard? Yeah, so I've been looking also at PAL centers and how they are places where children and police officers can cultivate positive relationships through recreational activities like boxing, basketball, mentorship, baseball, table tennis. And I've looked at photos and newspaper articles from Temple's Urban Archives that talk about those relations. And I've also, with the Arlen Specter papers, his law briefs, I'm investigating like the programs that he was involved in and promoted like Safe Streets Inc. And Safe Streets Inc. being a organization that got community residents, gang members, and police officers together in public spaces to discuss like the solutions that could solve crime and other issues between police officers and residents. And Spectre also was involved in trying to find solutions to juvenile crime and ending, ensuring proper procedural action in criminal cases. So I want the project that I'm working on to not only talk about structural violence and its causes and how it's still present today, but I also want to find solutions to racial tensions and violence between the police and the black community. and. I think if you study the 70s where tensions were high in Philadelphia, then we might have an idea of how to solve those issues that are present today. We might not find all the solutions in the 70s. We might have to tweak them. We might have to add to them or change them, but it's a good place to start. And I think that it's good to, like I agree, you can't put a blanket on like all groups. You can't say it all. African Americans are criminal, you can't say all cops are bad, and I, I would never say that, I never would say that in my research. But I think that one of the main reasons why the problems between the police and the black community hasn't been solved is the fact that we were not acknowledging that it goes beyond like confrontations and mistrust between two individuals. It goes back to laws, it goes back to issues with government and economics and even poverty. The fact that poverty would drive someone to crime and the fact that governments don't always have the money or don't give the money to schools, to 
welfare and organizations that would keep people out of poverty is like the main reason why simple crimes happen, even murder, things that just take innocent people away from their families, be they, be they citizens or police officers. And it's only when people, innocent people are killed that we only start to want to dig up information about why these instances keep happening. But if we don't solve the issue of poverty in our neighborhoods first, in our state and cities, then we're still going to have the same issues. Because you have average people, they're not going to dig up all this information and understand why some people don't trust the police. They need someone to, I mean, not only educate them, but also solve their basic livelihood issues. And that's like the main problem. There's a story, there's a case that I'm haunted by from my research where in 1976, a teenager named Andre Martin, he killed a white officer at Wilson Park Housing Projects in February 1976. He shot Officer John Tritton in the left eye. He had three children and a wife. He was going to community college. He, he was a mummer. He wanted, I guess, the best for his family. And because Andre Martin lived in a housing project, where there was rapes, robberies, murders committed at the housing project. It was underfunding. The place was unkept. There were broken window panes. There were children falling down broken elevator shafts. And six months prior, well, five months prior in September, his friend was shot by police officers in an alley outside of a Pantry Pride supermarket about a block away from his southwest Philadelphia neighborhood. And... It's that, in, that incident in which Andre Martin believed that his friend was um, excessively, faced excessive abuse from the police, seeing that he went into Holmesburg prison in a wheelchair, that he didn't wanna, he didn't wanna put all the pieces together, that it's not John Trenton, the officer's fault, why his friend was shot at the Pantry Pride why he was spread of shot at the pantry prize supermarket. It's he he basically blamed he looked at race and he looked at the police force and he blamed them for what was happening to his friend and accusing the police department as a monolith, looking at them as a whole, saying that they did why didn't they understand that my friend only robbed the supermarket because his family was poor, they were hungry, his mother worked many jobs. And I think on the flip side, there's many people in society that see these crimes committed by African-Americans against the police, and they don't understand that it's a result of poverty that causes them to go into crime. And when we don't make the connections and realize that some retaliations are a result of people struggling to like overcome poverty and disadvantages based on laws that over time have bias have been disadvantaging to some and advantaging others, that's where we need to like look at both sides of the coin and figure out the solution. Is that your your end product is going to be recommendations on how we can improve what we do? Is yes. that where you're looking to do? Yes. Good. And why'd you pick the seventies? Did you find that, that those programs through Spectre and other people such as Hill and uh, sorry, Green. Green. Sorry, Green. That they were effective. Three, three, three. That they were effective in 
try to pick up on them? Is that why you're focusing on the 70s? Um, the 70s um, two reasons because there were high the highest numbers of police murder being murdered and African Americans murdered since 1930. And then the other reason was that there is many records of police and community activists working to solve the issue of of violence between both entities. Was that the proliferation of all kinds of resources, images, newspaper articles, everything. It was mass, in my opinion, like um, advocacy and trying to better the relationship between the two. Yeah, the 70s, the city of Philadelphia was just starting to get its arms around some of the key issues. They had not really even tried to address them in the 60s and before that because they were just sort of developing and then they went into the surface. But in the 70s, for the first time, there was some cohesive. They're dropping the ball in the 80s. So that's what I was well, saying. Well, is that, was there a. No comments. <laughs> you're here for comments, right? Um, but you have to factor in to what was happening across the country. Uh, there was a, a massive breakout of African Americans. Civil rights was on the rise, demanding equality was on the rise. So there had to be something to try to harness that. In Philadelphia, we had the march on Gerard College, uh, which uh, it broke the will of Stephen Gerard that the college was only for white male orphans boys. Okay, so they marched for two years, took it to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court broke the will. So it was a coming out party in America. And there were people having a big, big problem with that. So they start trying to fence everything in. And that had a lot to do with the anger. Being poor is not a reason enough for crime. Dysfunctionality is. Not knowing who you are. Having a pain that you don't know what to do with. The anger. And then being bottled in. That had a lot to do with the massive breakdown. One of the things that we saw and, and that does make a difference is forms such as this, with white and black sitting down with complete transparency in your feelings. Let's, let's get to the reason that you think that is. We have to have discussions. People have to talk. I have to know what makes you tick. Then come to find out the same thing Wow, I thought it was something different. I, I, I was told it was something different. But you're the same as I. It's a pigmentation difference. But until we have that discussion, when Wilson Good became the first African-American mayor of Philadelphia, the first thing he did with the police department is make the entire police department go through sensitivity training. And he brought in Dr. Bill Robinson. Excellent. He was on it. This guy, he went straight to your gut. And he had people facing their fears and their prejudices. But it was a form that came together. If you do not do that, there will always be some separation. But we have to come together. We have to discuss it. And we have to talk. In all respect, I just have to mention, I, I knew Arlen well. He did so much for our community. So much. Um, and uh, I, I told you a fellow. Well, congratulations. Thanks. He he not only talked the talk, he walked the walk. 
millions of dollars be poured into this city uh, for race equality, better schools. Um, and he was a Republican. <laughs> but guess what? He was a rhino. But guess what? <laughs> uh, I, I, I was uh, uh, the president of Democrats for all inspectors. Oh. Okay? Uh, that, that's, that's how much I, we were funded. So, congratulations. And I know we can't see it, but she's actually looking at you right now. <laughs> and next meeting, I'm getting Benny to come up. Yeah, yeah. He'll tell, he'll tell, tell tear their heads off. <laughs> so where is your research going to end up here? I think it's going to end up in the present, and they tried to like see why we can't seem to solve the issue of violence between police and citizens, and and I think I mean there's more to it. It's not just a historical investigation. There's also sociology involved. There's psychology involved, and economics or have to play a role in like figuring out how to solve the tensions between the two. I, I just have a quick I think this might drag us over time, but you know, we, we almost run through this Le Miserable situation where um, Jean Baron stood all over Brad due to poverty and during the middle of the story he found Jesus, I'd say that, and find a way to to find his cause and go on a righteous way and even I'll go as far as saying maybe redemption for the past but then with we, there's like what dr reed mentioned that uh, uh we have good cops we have bad cops if people are already racist before they join the force they're going to continue going on that way and there are good people there are bad people uh, but then especially in today um we have news outlets and media playing deception games with the public, portraying certain um, factors in our society in certain ways. Um, it's dangerous. It's very dangerous. However, give, given this fact can hardly be changed, you know, the First Amendment stands there and people get to say what they want to say um, given their own agenda. Um, and this already broken trust is a historic problem now. And how do it, it seems like we're in a paradox? It can't be. It can't be resolved unless you have every single individual um, on, on the same front. But then, then you can't do it. Um, what would you recommend, or what do you think that, as far as individual or even institutions, uh, what they can do to resolve the problem of this distrust, given you know the massive deception that's in place and can't be yielded. I just, Dr. Reed made one comment which surprised me, uh, and that was about our police commissioner, Ross. Uh, and the sense of what I heard Dr. Reed say is that he doesn't understand the cops that are on the street as much as he understands the book learning that he has gotten over the years. And I guess what I'd like to suggest to you is most of what I hear from you is, is a lot of book information, statistics, that, that, that 
population, that type of thing. Please don't forget the Tommy Reeves of the world. Uh, I think they bring another side of the whole thing to to what you're trying to accomplish. And I, I, all I can say is I wish you well. Good luck. It's a big problem. Yeah, I've been looking at not only like statistics, but also oral histories from the people that actually experienced it in the 70s. There's a, there's a there's, whole group of them that's going out there. Yeah, there's, there's books held at Temple's Urban Archives where from 1972 and from 1979, where actual people, citizens were interviewed and given their giving, giving their testimony of their experiences with the police. And some are positive, some are negative, but it's the fact that the negative ones exist that you have to do this research. You have to look at race, you have to look at class and figure out how to solve the issues. I mean, I don't want to, I'm not trying to paint all police as bad or mis or not trustworthy, but the fact that you have a minority of police officers, black and white, that in some cases are racially, or using discriminatory policing, you have to solve that. Because the only, the main thing is that I have an issue is that people only get concerned about this issue when people die be it citizens or police officers. And that's too late. You have to do something early. And oftentimes it gets political, it gets with money, and people don't want to touch that. They rather, they rather cut taxes than put funding into schools. For example, there's um, a school in Fairhill that, um, um, it, it's now, there's a school in Fairhill that was, it today is Edison High School. And originally it was a, um, a school that blacks and whites attended. And prior to 1950s, only white students were attending. And it was only in the 50s when it became integrated that government officials, people in, in school board wanted to and that, and they created Northeast High School, and Edison High School was created. So Edison High School became a predominantly black and later Latino school that was underfunded, and Northeast High School became a predominantly white that became later mixed high school. And because of racial issues that happened in the past carrying down to the present, you still have that disparity, and, and some people don't want to acknowledge that race is an issue still. I mean, there's plenty of people that are not racist, but the fact that there's a small majority, a small minority that are affecting the majority, you have to address it. You have to do something about it. And oftentimes, when it gets political and economic, people don't, they want to shy away from it. And it's only when people die that people take concern. That's what I'm trying to prevent early on. Well, thank you. That's a very good way to end it. Thank you, and thank you, Dr. Green, for um, hopefully we'll see you next semester when the research is further on and we'll look at the solutions yeah. that you post. We look forward to that. Thank you. Thanks. You're going to have a lot of people looking at that. <laughs> <No>. <laughs>